Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 25 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Paul and Barnabas at Pisidian Antioch, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? So this is one of the most extensive examples of apostolic preaching of the cross that we get in the book of Acts. Uh, for the most part, the sermon um, the sermon samples are shorter. We're going to get the same thing in Acts 17 in Athens. But this is an example of kind of synagogue-based preaching, whereas in Acts 17, we will see that more kind of um, Gentile-based preaching, a kind of a different approach, and we can compare them. But here we see Paul uh, presenting the gospel to Jewish people in a synagogue and saturating with Old Testament scriptures and proclaiming to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's going to be very instructive for us. Well, let me go ahead and read verses 13 through 43 in Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Andy, what significant thing does Luke tell us happened in verse 13 at the outset of this passage we're looking at? So we're getting the movement of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Journey. They leave Cyprus and go to the mainland, to what we know as modern-day Turkey. And they go inland. They land at Perga and Pamphylia, which is on the coastland, uh, southern coastline of Turkey, and move more inland to Pisidian Antioch. So we're, we're um, uh, following Paul and Barnabas on their on their journey. We also learn something very significant in verse 13, that John, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Hmm. And this is going to end up being a very significant uh, issue in the relationship between Paul and Barnabas, but later. So we're not going to get into that, but later, sadly, Paul and Barnabas will have to split up because of a disagreement over this very same man, John Mark. But here in verse 13, he leaves them to go to Jerusalem. What did Paul and Barnabas do when they reached Pisidian Antioch? Well, as always, and we have this expression that we, we see in Romans uh, chapter 1, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so their strategy was to go to synagogues first. So they went on the Sabbath uh, to the synagogue, and the custom was that really any Jewish man who had had his bar mitzvah, anybody who had uh, um, a man who had reached the, the uh, age of majority, he had gone through his, his bar mitzvah, who was able to comment on the word of God. Uh, so they wouldn't have a single uh, preacher, a uh, central preacher always, but they would have uh, various ones from the community. And especially uh, those that were coming from other communities, traveling scholars would be very welcomed and urged to speak. And so Paul and Barnabas take advantage of this. They uh, go to the synagogue and they are invited to speak on the word of God. Let's talk a little more about synagogue life. What do we learn about synagogue life from verse 15? Okay, so um, the central to the synagogue life was the reading of the scripture, the reading of the law and the prophets. We also have synagogue rulers, so these would be individuals in that community who are leaders in the community, pillars in the community who would run synagogue life. So the centerpiece of synagogue worship was the reading of the of the Old Testament scriptures. These scriptures are read uh, in all of these places, uh, all over the the diaspora where the Jews have been scattered. This is going to be a significant fe uh, feature by the way, on the issue of um, in Acts 15 about circumcision and then uh, the meat sacrifice to idols and, and uh, eating of blood, especially the issue of eating of blood because Moses was preached in all of these places. So there was a widespread dissemination of the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. And I think that's providential. God went ahead of the gospel and spread the scriptures around so that Paul and Barnabas and other preachers could come along afterwards and say, look, the very things that you read every synagogue, every Sabbath at the synagogue, 
have been fulfilled in Jesus. So mm-hmm. uh, this was providential. It was pre-evangelism by the power of the Lord. So in this synagogue life, central to it was the reading of the Law of the Prophets. Now we need to stop and just say, what an incredible gift we have to each of us have so many copies of the Word of God written. We have paper Bibles uh, you know, that we can pick up, and we certainly have electronic copies with our, our devices, our smartphones, and we have personal access to the Word of God at every moment. That's something that average Jewish people didn't have. They got it when they went to the synagogue. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, the word paraklesis, translated word of encouragement in verse 15, is related to the word for comforter that we also find in John 14 and 16. And really, it has a range of meanings from consolation to exhortation to encouragement to warning. How is the gospel all of these things. Oh, it's all of them. It's marvelous. But uh, let's just zero in on the way that most English translations translate the word encouragement. Hmm. Um, There is nothing more encouraging than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our sins may be forgiven, that we may spend eternity in heaven and not in hell. Nothing could be more encouraging than that. But we also see there is a word of exhortation in the gospel. Uh, God commands all people everywhere to repent. So it's a word of command. Uh, So it's just a strong word. Uh, The idea is parakaleo means to call alongside, literally. And so the Holy Spirit is the comforter, same same translate, the paraclete, et cetera, translation. Um, the idea is that the, the gospel comes alongside us to speak to us what we need to hear in our circumstances. And the circumstances are that we are sinners in need of salvation. There is no more important message that we could ever hear than this. Now, why do you think as Paul begins his message to them, why do you think he's giving the Jews a recounting of their own history, which they would have known so well? Well, I've said many times in my teaching before, and I continue to to say it now, I think this is vital. There is no uh, religion in the world for which history is so important as Christianity. Hmm. Uh, Second would be Judaism, but I put Judaism second to Christianity because they stepped aside from the history of Jesus and didn't believe in it. Uh, But we accept also the history of Jesus as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the book of Acts and the Gospels. But we also accept the foundational history of God's dealings with the Jewish nation. There is a developing story of God's working with the human race in general, and then specifically working with the Jewish people. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus said to the Samaritan uh, woman. Um, the, The foundational working of God is with the Jewish nation. And so the call of Abraham, and then in this case, he begins um, with the exodus from Egypt. So that's the beginning of the Jewish nation um, under Moses and the Mosaic Covenant. So he calls them out of Egypt and gives them this history. What he wants them to know is the coming of Jesus was the development or the fulfillment of a developed history that God had with the Jewish nation. And they would have loved hearing their history. This mm-hmm. was important, the recounting of these things. This was vital to the Jewish piety, that fathers should teach their sons what God did in the Exodus, what God did through Moses, that the fathers would train the sons, Deuteronomy 6, talking about the word of God when they sit at home and when they they, uh, walk along the road, when they lie down, when they rise up. They're going to go over Jewish history with their sons, the fathers are. And so Paul just fits right into that and says, now let me tell you what's happened. There is a fulfillment of that history in the coming of Jesus. 
Why is it significant that Paul addresses not only Jews, but also God-fearing Gentiles at the beginning of his message? Well, I think by this time, it's very, very clear to Paul that he is called as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's always going to go to the Jews first. But even in this very chapter, he's going to turn to the Gentiles. He knows that's coming. And he knows that God in his, in his wisdom and in his kindness has gone on ahead of him, preparing good works for him to do. And he did that even for centuries before the gospel came there by the diaspora of the Jews scattered among the Assyrian and then the Babylonian exiles. And so they're out and about in the, in, the, in the Gentile world and they're living out their monotheism and their hope in the prophetic promises and all of these things and a number of God-fearers uh, Gentiles who are interested in the Jewish religion start attending uh, worship as best they can. There probably would have been a division where they couldn't physically come in, um, but they were there listening to the messages. They were interested. Some of these would even be high-placed Roman officials like Cornelius uh, in Acts 10. These would be individuals that would be very strategic, and Paul wants to address them. So Paul begins with the patriarchs and specifically God's election of the patriarchs. What's his logic here? All right, his logic is um, that that through uh, the election of ultimately David, God is bringing a savior to the world. So who is David? Well, he traces out the history. And we, so we've got King Saul and then God rejecting Saul and um, choosing instead David, a man after God's own heart. This was uh, the hero of to the Jewish people, Abraham and David, Moses. These are the key heroes. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to David, the son of David who would reign forever on David's throne. In what way did God exalt or bless or prosper or even make great the people of Israel during their stay in Egypt, especially mm -hmm. in that they were slaves? And how is that exaltation a fulfillment of promises made to Abraham? Well, I think the only way they were made great during their slavery was by biological reproduction. They got to be a huge nation. So when you think about I forget the number, like 78 that go into uh, Egypt in the time of Joseph. And they are probably, there are 650,000 men uh, as counted by the census, plus women and children. We're looking at a couple of million coming out. Mm. That's the answer to your question. That's how amazingly they, they uh, prospered. And so this happened in just four generations. Now, they were long generations. But it was, if you look at the list uh, of... Uh, uh, Moses' genealogy, it's just four generations from those that went in to the promise uh, into Egypt and those that came out under Moses. Uh, mm -hmm. So in a very short time, 450 years, uh, he exploded their population from you know 78 or so to several million. So when we read that he made the people great, we should understand that to mean he made them many or a, yeah. a, a large number of yeah. people. I yeah, I mean, just not prosperous, but yeah, a huge, a huge nation. Yeah, and And again, that's in fulfillment of the prediction that he made to Abraham saying, I'll make your, your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. What does Paul say about the relationship between the Jews and God in verses 17 through 20? Um, well, it says he endured their conduct. That's what my translation says. Um, other translations say he cared for them. But uh, what, do you, what do you say in verse 18? Yeah, so I'm uh, reading out of the ESV. It says he put up with them in yeah. the wilderness. Yeah, so they really were pagans. I mean, the, 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 the Jews coming out of 450 years of life in Egypt with the Egyptian gods, they were 
they were drawn after the Egyptian gods. They they didn't mm. know who the Lord was. Maybe their the fathers hadn't uh, told the sons about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises. They they were like Esau. They didn't care about the promises, etc. And so they acted like pagans. And and most of them died in the desert, as Paul says in Corinthians. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. First Corinthians ten. God was not pleased with most of them. And so he endured their paganism. He endured their their idolatry. They made the golden calf. He put up with them. They also were constantly murmuring and complaining against God, uh, hating the manna, you know, arguing against Moses and Aaron. And so God put up with them for 40 years in the desert. Andy, you alluded to this a moment ago, but Paul goes on to uh, recount the history of the kingship leading up to David. And really, he's, he's setting up the history of Jesus that he's about to unfold in verses 23 through 31. Is there anything else we need to understand about the history of the kingship leading up to David before we look at the history of Jesus? Well, here's the thing. When, when you look at this sermon, you know that there, there, there's like code language for all kinds of history. Uh, behind it. Uh, there's just all kinds of things. It's almost like Paul's saying, go back and look at it. Go back and look what 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 led to them asking for a king. Uh, go back and look to, uh, to the era of the judges. Uh, so basically, as Stephen is doing, but um, Paul is more subtle, uh, not as in your face as Stephen uh, became, uh, openly said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That was Stephen. Paul's basically saying, look, the history of our people is a history of, of rebellion. It's a history of disobedience against God and the need for a savior. And so God is ultimately bringing a savior um, to uh, this nation who so need it, need it so much. Um, you know, verse 23, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Mm. So if you go back to, let's say, just the word judges, God gave them judges. Have you read the book of Judges? What is going on in that book? That is what the nation of Israel looks like when the law of God is not taught and the people are, they're just no different than pagans. They're no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. They're, they're just as bad as any other nation. And that's why the judges came. God had punished them. God brought military deliverers who would deliver them. But in those days, they had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a very sad history. And then along comes um, Saul, um, who ruled for 40 years, and he was not a godly man. He basically, I think, went crazy. Um, and tried to kill his own son, tried to kill David, et cetera. So, you know, the fact is the Jews, as much as anyone else on earth, need the Savior who is to come, Jesus. And verse 23 is really where Paul makes that shift, right? Looking back Mm -hmm. uh, at David, but then looking forward at David's offspring, Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately culminating in the coming of the Messiah. Now, before Jesus, uh, there was another, John. What role does John the Baptist play in this message of Paul's? Well, I don't know if they knew about John, but John was very famous. Uh, people came from all over Palestine to hear John preach. And because people came from all over the Greco-Roman world to Jerusalem, God-fearers would come, then uh, it must have been that many had heard of John and the preaching he did. But John was a clear uh, prophet testifying to the coming of Jesus. And he preached uh, repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as he was finishing his work, he pointed to or testified to the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. This one is coming whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's coming after me. So he was heightening 
expectation. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, whether you heard of John or not, this happened. And now I want to tell you about the one that John predicted, the one whose coming was foretold, the one John said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. So again, Paul's using John here to heighten expectation of the coming of Jesus. In verse 26, Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So he's uh, unpacking the reality that this gospel, this good news has been entrusted to them uh, and they need to hear this. They need to listen and respond to what he's about to unfold for them. Why does Paul mention so prominently the Jewish rejection of Jesus in verses 27 through 29? And what other themes does Paul weave into that rejection? Well, it's foundational to the salvation of the world that the Jews would reject Jesus. I mean, why did he die? It's because the Jewish authorities rejected him and accused him of blasphemy and turned him over to the Gentiles to be executed. But this very thing was predicted. Um, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Or again, Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord uh, been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one whom, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's clearly predicted. The re- rejection of Jesus, the Messiah, by the Jewish nation was predicted in many places. And it was essential to the salvation of the world because he had to be killed. And it was essential to God's wisdom because Jews and Gentiles together, they work together to kill the Savior of the world so that the guilt is spread equally because all of us need this Savior. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the rejection of, the, of, of Jesus by the Jews is essential. Also, he knows where we're heading. He's, he's not He's not foolish. He, he's actually done this ministry many times in a lot of synagogues. He mm. says, I, I know what's going to come. Uh, there are going to be a few of you that will believe, and the rest of you are going to persecute. So he's trying to get out ahead of that to say, look, this is the very thing that had happened. They had rejected the Messiah. This rejection that showed itself in the crucifixion ultimately, though, would lead to Christ's resurrection, not just dying and being buried, but rising again. Mm -hmm. How does the resurrection of Christ and the witness to this resurrection factor into the message of Paul? Yeah, it's remarkable. If you go through the book of Acts, you're always going to see any extended preaching of the gospel. They're always going to mention the resurrection. It's central. Um, And so the resurrection is what vindicates Jesus. It sets him apart. It vindicates everything he said about himself. And it completely refutes the rejection of the Jewish nation, which Paul said by their rejection, they fulfilled the very words of Scripture they read every week. So he's going to write later in Corinthians that whenever Moses is read, a veil covers their minds. They cannot see the truth. But the very thing that the prophets predicted would happen, they have fulfilled. And so this, uh, their crucifixion uh, was, was done. The, the, the handing over of Jesus to the death sentence was done unjustly. There was no ground for it, but it happened. And then after all of these pro- prophesied things have been carried out, they, uh, they killed him and he was laid in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And in so doing, he vindicated Jesus and gave us, all of us, a hope for salvation. And Paul speaks of witnesses to Christ's resurrection, but goes on to say uh, that 
they've been given this good news to proclaim. What is the good news that Paul is telling the Jews? And why do you think Paul focuses so much on this promise fulfillment motif in his message? Well, you know, he doesn't really get to the good news until the end of his message. Um, He gets to it in verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, here it is. Here's the good news. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Hmm. All right, that's the good news. The good news is that our sins can be forgiven. It's implied in verse 23, where he says, um, uh, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Save from what? Well, we know from Matthew one twenty one, he will save his people from their sins. So this is the good news. But he doesn't get to the good news right away. He just says, there is good news. I'll tell you what it is in just a minute, but let me say a few more things about Jesus in terms of fulfillment of prophecy. Let's talk about that fulfillment of prophecy a little bit here. How do Psalm 2 and Isaiah 55, 3 that are quoted in verses 33 and 34 relate to the resurrection? Uh, It's very deep, actually. I've thought about this a lot. The quotation of of the second Psalm here, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is is very interesting because the author to Hebrews quotes it as well. But I'm just going to keep to Acts 13 here. Paul's basically saying that by... Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he was publicly portrayed and presented to the world as the Son of God. Mm. It kind of finished the resume, the evidence that Jesus was the Son of God as he claimed to be. That's the theme, the entire theme of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so by raising him from the dead, he declared Jesus to be his own son, his son, his only begotten son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, the word today seems in this preaching um, to be linked to the resurrection. Um, and yet the author to Hebrews links it to his birth. Uh, when God brought his firstborn into the world, he testified saying, uh, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so um, everything connected with Jesus' physicality, the taking on of a human body through the Virgin Mary, and then the taking again of a resurrection body by his resurrection from the dead, all of that was part of him being proclaimed to the world as mm. the Son of God. So that's the first, Psalm Psalm 2. And then Psalm 2, all of it is clearly messianic, where he warns the kings of the earth to kiss the son, um, lest he be angry with him. And so the son, the son is the son of God. And by kissing him uh, in Psalm 2, it means to believe in him and trust in him. Um, and there's a warning that Paul gives right here in Pisidian Antioch, you know, to, to not disbelieve in Jesus uh, fundamentally. Um, and then he goes on in verse 34 to refer to um, Isaiah 55. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Now, what I think is, this Isaiah 55.3, and Isaiah 55 is so amazing. The whole chapter is a gospel proclamation. And it's like, you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you have no money, come buy and eat, come buy without money. Um, you know, why spend your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, mm. listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fair. God's word will not return empty. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The the mountains and the hills will break forth before you. This is it's Isaiah 55 is the is the gospel chapter. And I think what Paul's doing is he's saying, yeah, all of it, Isaiah 55. And frankly, not just Isaiah 55, but that whole section of Isaiah, that whole, that whole 
region of Isaiah's prediction uh, goes to substitutionary atonement in Isaiah 53, and then uh, his resurrection from the dead, the fact that God raised him from the dead, never to see decay, is in Isaiah 50, 53, and then on into 54, extend the tent and make the tent bigger. Uh, it goes out. That's a gospel spreading out, and then Isaiah 55 mm-hmm. is the invitation, come drink. Uh, so I think he's saying the fact that God raised him from the dead, not to decay, is stated in the whole package of the promise made to David as predicted in Isaiah the prophet. Now, the connection to Psalm 16, which is also quoted here, seems a little easier to make even than the ones that uh, you were just elaborating for us. How do verses 35 through 37 really cinch the argument that Paul is making? Yeah, so in Psalm 16, he says, you will not let your Holy One uh, see decay. So this is the very thing that uh, Peter had had preached on as well on the day of Pentecost. And uh, that is, look— uh, there, there is no one else other than Jesus who died and didn't decay. Mm. Um, and so uh, fundamentally, this these words, you will not let your Holy One see decay, cannot refer to David. But instead, uh, as Peter said plainly on the day of Pentecost, um, David was a prophet and he predicted that God would raise his son from the dead uh, and he did that in Jesus. So um, Paul doubles down on that same approach saying, now look, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and guess what? His body decayed. So he wasn't talking about himself. Who was he talking about? Well, the one whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, did not see decay. So he's saying, look, go back and read Isaiah 55. Go back a little further than that, read Isaiah 53, and you'll see the prediction of the resurrection. Then look at Psalm 16. There's no doubt that God predicted um, you know, the, that he would raise from the dead. He would be raised from the dead. Um, and by the way, I think that's what he's doing with Isaiah 55.3. He's not just saying read Isaiah 55. He's saying the holy and sure pro, uh, blessings promised to David, such as Psalm 16, mm. that's a promise made to David, mm-hmm. that's fulfilled in Jesus. That's yeah. what he's getting at yeah. here. So it's just evidence that uh, Christ is the Messiah. Now, as any good teacher would, Paul wants to make application to his hearers, and specifically his Jewish hearers here. How does Paul apply this sermon? What commands does he give his hearers? And what does the overall tenor of his comments teach us about evangelism? All right, so now he's going to cinch the deal. I do find it interesting. It's like, all right, what's the point? What, what, what do you, why are you telling us all this? Well, here it is. Here's the punchline. Here's here's the application to the sermon. Therefore, my brothers, speaking in that Jewish familiar language, you know, we're brothers together. My brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I mean, that's it. That's the gospel message for you uh, here at Two Journeys. This is the good news for all of us in every generation. Our sins can be forgiven. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing is more encouraging than that. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is preached. It's proclaimed to you. So if you listen to the preaching and believe it, your sins will be forgiven. Through him, through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. We know how much theology there is behind that. That is the clear assertion of forgiveness of sins, justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. The the law of Moses could not justify us. We could not receive forgiveness of sins, but we do get it by faith in Jesus. And then he gives a warning. He says, look, you've heard it. You've got the gospel. Now I'm going to give you a warning. Take care. Be very careful that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. 
Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, mm. even as someone told you. That's Habakkuk 1.5. And he's talking, he's just giving a warning there um, that if you don't believe this, you are going to be condemned. So it's very, very important that you not be a scoffer and wonder, wonder meaning I don't think it's true, and perish. How do we account for the initial reaction to this message that Paul has just delivered? And what does he mean when he says, continue in the grace of God? All right, so they want to hear more. Uh, they, they don't reject immediately. Um, I think there's going to be a rejection across the week when the message settles in, mm. similar to the difference in the persecution, if you could call it that, between Acts 4 and Acts 5. Acts 4, they arrest Peter and John after the healing of the lame beggar, and they just warn them and let them go. Acts 5, they beat them. So they've had more time to think. Um, and so I think the same thing's going to happen, sadly, here in Pisidian Antioch. The initial reaction is, huh, okay, I want to hear you more about this. Um, and so please speak next Sabbath on these things. Hmm. But then there is a small number of Jews and devout converts to Judaism who follow Paul and Barnabas and Want to know more? You can tell they they've they've come to faith, hmm. and so then to that smaller number of people, that remnant, Paul is saying you need to continue in the grace of God. And by the way, that expression gives us a sense of why Paul always began his epistles the same way: grace to you and peace. So he's saying continue in the grace of God. Hmm. Now I'm going to send you one of my epistles. And if you read it, it, it will be an, a vehicle of God's grace to you. But you have to continue in the grace of God. You have to continue to grow in grace in the knowledge of Christ, as Peter said. Andy, any final thoughts for us on this passage that we've looked at today? Oh, it's very rich and powerful, isn't it? And how encouraging to us to know that all of these things that we believe, they're not coming up like some myth or fable out of thin air. But there is a developed history that is recorded for us in the Bible uh, that no man could have ever made up and that's been validated by archaeology and by other aspects, but especially by Scripture itself, that there is a story of human sinfulness and of God's working with sinful human beings to bring about a Savior and salvation through faith in Jesus. And I'm personally encouraged when I read this. Acts 13 is a great chapter and a testimony to the truth of the gospel. Well, this has been episode 25 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. And we want to invite you to join us next time for episode 26, entitled The Gospel in Antioch and then Iconium, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 13, verse 44, through chapter 14, verse 7. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.